I'm lead pastor Noel Petras, and welcome to the Exeter Valley Church podcast. Our church plant started in 2021 with the goal of seeing God's kingdom extended in our hometown. If you're curious about Jesus, looking for a home in the family of God, or feel called to be a part of a kingdom expansion in Exeter, California, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 9.30 a.m. in the Veterans Memorial Building at 324 North Cahuilla Avenue. For more information, head on over to www.exetervalleychurch.com or find us on social media. Thanks for listening. I wanted to start by telling a bit of a story. When I was a sophomore in high school, playing basketball at that Nuba High School, we were in the gym uh, waiting for practice to begin. And I don't know, I guess we were goofing off or something. Um, and uh, Coach Clark walked into the gym and didn't like what he saw. And uh, Coach Clark was super, like, emotive, expressive coach. He was, like, you know, frantic. Uh, People used to joke that he was, like, literally helping us play defense on the sideline, you know, that kind of coach. Anyways, Coach Clark, and and I share this story with his permission. I asked him last night. But um, Coach Clark walked into the gym didn't like what he saw, and flipped. Flipped his lid. And I don't know exactly what he said. I know that he shrieked a little bit. He was not a swearer, so I guarantee it was, it was PG. But I do recall that he grabbed the cart that we had the basketballs in and flung it across the gym floor, basketballs just going everywhere. And he ordered us to go home. And we were just like looking at each other, what in the world just happened? And then we quickly left so that he didn't change his mind and make us practice anyways that day. But I don't know, I always think about that story when I read this story about Jesus storming uh, into the temple. So anyway, sorry for another sports illustration. Um, I just can't help myself. Uh, but let's see. Anyways, we're, we're, let's see where we're at. I'll start with some context here, where we're at in the story And we'll see what's up with Jesus going Bobby Knight on the temple and the the poor fig tree. So Jesus has been on a journey, right? He he started his ministry up in Galilee, and now he's he's been heading back towards Jerusalem. And uh, we saw just a few weeks ago, he was in Jericho, and that's where he healed the two blind men. And then uh, last week, his story uh, took place in a town called Bethpage, which actually some people think uh, th- the original word actually means house of figs. So that's kind of interesting as we come to a part in the story uh, where Jesus is going to curse a fig tree. We also hear about this town called Bethany. If you look at the map, and Gunnar, I think I have a map up here. Um, if you look at the map, um, maybe you can barely see that uh, Bethany and Bethpage are really close together. Uh, Bethany is just a couple miles. I should have circled it. You're right, Meg. It's just a couple miles outside of Jerusalem. So uh, Bethany was actually the place. You remember the story of Lazarus being raised? Uh, Bethany was the town uh, that that Lazarus resided in. So just to give you a little bit more context about where we're at. So anyways, Jesus is heading down to Jerusalem, and he was not alone. All the Jews were heading to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were there for the Passover. And I think this is something that Michael shared last week. I mean, it would be a time of celebration, definitely like a festival, a very regal uh, atmosphere, a very anticipatory atmosphere. All the bigwigs 
and uh, would be in place, and, and everyone was coming to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, the Passover. And the story takes place in a specific part of the temple, at least the first part of the story, the temple cleansing part of the story, takes place in a specific part uh, of the temple. This, this area in the temple was called the Court of the Gentiles. You can go to the next slide. So the Court of the Gentiles, so actually I forgot that I put this picture in here. This is a picture of modern-day Jerusalem. Bruce, you just saw this probably. Bruce was in the Holy Lands recently. So this picture is basically from the perspective uh, on top of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus would have headed from Bethany up over the hill, past the, the Mount of Olives, down the hill into Jerusalem, and then towards Jerusalem. If you read the Luke account of this story, Jesus starts by looking over Jerusalem and weeping for Jerusalem. So I wanted to set the, set the stage. This is what Jesus would have seen. Now that, that big dome you see in the background that looks like something that belongs at Notre Dame University, that's, uh, that's actually now uh, a mosque. That was not there when uh, Jesus was there. But you do see the remnants. You can kind of see the wall of the Temple Mount as they know it. So anyways, this is what Jesus would have seen as he was approaching Jerusalem. Move on to the next slide. So here we've got a bit of a model of the temple courts, okay? And I, I've put up here in, in bright red, the area that this story took place in was called the Court of Gentiles, okay? So when it says Jesus entered the temple courts in verse 12, this is the part of the temple that he entered. Now, these courts would have been the only place that non-Jews could enter. This is where the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, would have been able to come and worship. Now, the Jews had turned these courts into some sort of marketplace, we find. And uh, so, a couple things about this being a marketplace. Number one, that uh, this would have been a place where people were perhaps being taken advantage of financially. So uh, think of it this way. Have you ever been, I'm sure you've been to the movies, and when you get into the movies, you want to buy popcorn, right? Because the popcorn smells amazing, and the only place you can get it is up at the front counter. Now, do they charge a normal price for popcorn at the front counter? Not even close. It's the same experience if you ever tried to buy a beer in a football stadium. It's ridiculously expensive. You get what I'm saying. So this is kind of what's going on here. People have, uh, have been pilgrimaging from all over, coming to the temple to make their annual sacrifice and to pay the annual temple tax. And it would be way more for convenient for people to buy an animal there in the temple or at the temple than it would be to haul Bambi, right, over their shoulders and bring the animal. You don't like that, Jacqueline? Okay, not Bambi. Just Jacqueline loves animals. Anyways, uh, you get what I'm saying, right? It would have been way more convenient for them. So in, in some ways, this was an act of convenience, but it, it would seem by Jesus's words that people were being taken advantage of. Does that make sense? All the more so, like one of the animals that's listed in this story is actually not lamb or goat, but doves. If you go to Leviticus 5, uh, doves were a worthy replacement sacrificially if you did not have enough money and could not afford an, a lamb or a goat. So these are poor people that are being, probably being taken advantage of financially in the temple place. So what's happening uh, is important, and where it's happening is also really important. Um, also, if you go back, 1 Kings 8, and you guys, you're welcome to, uh, you know, look through your Bible, even if it's on your phone. Um, I'm going to be referencing some Old Testament passages, but 
If we look at Solomon's prayer of dedication, just as one example, one of the things that Solomon says in his prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8 is he talks about foreigners being able to come to the temple and worship God. So the Old Testament God was not just a God that only the Jews could worship. The Old Testament God was always a God that the Gentiles were invited to worship as well. So what's happening here? In the place that the Gentiles are supposed to be able to worship, outside the main temple courts, in the Gentile temple courts, people are getting ripped off in a way that exploits them not just economically, but also spiritually. Think back to the medieval practice of indulgences. Some of you are maybe familiar with this idea that you could pay in the Middle, middle Ages. The Catholic Church allowed you to pay for the forgiveness of sins by, by buying indulgences. And this is one of the things that kind of set off the whole Protestant Reformation. Anyways, so this is a picture of probably what's going on in this story. This is also, so this is super interesting. So we've been studying the book of Matthew for our entire two years as a church. And we're to chapter 21 right now. Um, so I think, there, are there 29? I should know this. I think there's 28 or 29 chapters in the book of Matthew. And uh, we're, we're hoping, we're on pace, we think, to finish the book of Matthew at Easter of 2024. That gives, there, there are seven days that will be recounted in those next seven chapters. So we're going to spend the next seven months talking about seven days in the life of Jesus. So that's pretty remarkable. This is basically part of what we would call Holy Week. Okay, so anyway, just to put some perspective, I thought that's kind of cool. A fun fact to know and tell at least. So anyway, today we're looking at um, our third profile in this little mini-series here in this Matthew chapter 21. Who is Jesus? And we're going to learn today that Jesus was also a mighty prophet. So let's, let's jump right in. Verse 12. It says, Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So this is uh, the first part of the story today is Jesus cleansing the temple. And there's going to be, I think, two other parts of the story. But the first part is Jesus cleansing the temple. So what did Jesus do? He walks in. He throws out those selling and those buying. I think that's like a really interesting sub-fact. It's not just the people who are taking advantage of people. It's the people that are being taken advantage of that Jesus throws out. Nobody uh, avoids complicity here. The buyer is just as guilty as the seller in this case. We learn in this, in this first verse that callous religion upsets Jesus just as much as it upsets prophets like Amos. Like, have you... Have you, um, have you read Amos? I think this is chapter 5, uh, the book of Amos, he's 5, 21 through 24. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll like a river righteousness like a never failing stream so jesus is immediately upset at the religious practice that he sees in the temple so i explained a little bit about what was probably going on in the temple and this is the practice that jesus was so upset about but why was jesus so upset right and 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 then maybe even further like are we cool with this 
Like, are we cool with Jesus being so upset? And I think that we have to think about why he was upset in order to consider, are we cool with how upset he was? I don't know if anybody's ever like been taught or, or like growing up or, or thought to themselves like, well, okay, evidently getting really upset is not a sin because Jesus got really upset. Has anybody ever said that? I feel like that was used to rationalize some anger at times, not naming any names or anything like that. But I think Jesus was upset for two main reasons. The first reason was the location of what was happening. John 2, 16 through 17. So this is an interesting, um, so I said that this, this story is also in Mark and Luke. There's a different version of this story in John. It's in chapter 2, though, not towards the end. It's at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So they actually think, the commentators seem to agree, that there were probably two times that Jesus went into the temple and uh, overturned the tables and said, no, this is not good. So John chapter 2, 16 and 17, he says, Take these things away. You shall not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your father's house will consume me. So the location of the sales in the court of the Gentiles, they would have impeded the worship of the foreigners. And this was not okay with Jesus. So we should, uh, you know, the, the, the last passage that I read from Amos talks about let justice roll, right? Jesus cares about justice. Jesus cares about the foreigner. Jesus cares about the poor. We see that in this passage. The second thing that Jesus was so upset about was the practice of the marketplace. So not just the location of the marketplace within the Gentile court, but, but the practices that were happening in the marketplace, right? The, the buyers essentially were being ripped off, and Jesus is not okay with that. There's two types of um, uh, merchants listed in this story. Um, the first one is a money changer, and the second one is the people selling doves, right? So I already explained the, the doves and why the dove uh, thing was significant. But think about the money changers. Now, when we, we were just on, we were on vacation, and just to let the cat out of the bag, we were, uh, Megan and I went to Costa Rica for our 20th anniversary. And um, when you get off the plane in the airport, one of the things that you can do right away is exchange American currency for Costa Rican currency, right? But there's a catch, because you have to pay a fee if you make the exchange right there in the airport. And I think this is what was happening. And the fee was probably not just normal. It was probably exponential. People were being ripped off. You get what I'm saying? So when we read money changers, that's what we should think. But here's the thing, that both of these practices took advantage of the poor and the foreigner. The poor and the foreigner. And Jesus is mad at this temple system that's taking advantage of the outsider. So what do we do with Jesus' anger here? We see why he was angry. But what do we do with his anger? You know, is Jesus allowed to get angry? Are you allowed to get angry? Am I allowed to get angry? You know, we've seen him in just two stories ago. He was a merciful Lord. And then the last story, he was a modest king, right? He was riding in humbly on a donkey. We, we, we talked about, Michael talked about how he, he wasn't coming in with a sword. So, so far, we've had this kind of merciful picture of Jesus. We've had this very modest or at least humble picture of Jesus that is not the Jesus that we see in this story. He is mighty in this story. And I, I just wanted to say, you know, this morning we sang about how he loves us. I mean, Jesus, um, he, he's not just love. He's justice. And I would say he's just 
love. Or as I recall, my Bible teacher in college said, God is holy love. That's how he defined God. Holy love, meaning perfect love. Love expressed justly. And so we see, I think, in this story, through Jesus' anger, what it looks like to bring justice to the world. See, Jesus is upset at the spiritual and economic exploitation of people. And, uh, you know, he was essentially deconstructing his church at this point in time. And we've talked a lot about, I mean, I don't even know if that word existed prior to three or four years ago. But I think what Jesus is essentially saying is this is not how it should be. He walks into his house, his house, which should be a house of prayer. And he sees that that's just not the case. And so he's literally deconstructing the temple. And I think, you know, if we're honest, you guys, with ourselves, this is a practice that we should be participating in as well. Now, hopefully, you know, you won't feel the need to overturn tables and kick people out of here, but we should be coming into our church with an, with an eye for justice, with an eye for true faith. We don't want to be the kind of church that would just go along doing our thing without asking the tough questions of ourselves. Do you know what I'm saying? There's a sense, there's a sense to which the reason the deconstruction is happening in our current culture is because we, as the church, haven't been asking enough of the hard questions. And, and there are times, if we don't do that, there's times where we can get ourselves into a spot like these people, where we're just missing the point entirely. In, in Ezekiel 9, it, it says that the work of judgment should begin at my sanctuary. And I think if we begin our work of judgment right here, right, we're, we're so good at looking outside and judging the outside world. And I do this too, and I'm not saying that we shouldn't, but do we judge the inside walls? Do we judge what's going on here first and foremost? or just as much as we judge what's going on out there. So uh, maybe part of this story that's a bit offensive, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what you're swimming with right now. Maybe some of you have heard this story so many times, you're just like, cool with all of it. Maybe some of you are hearing it for the first time, and you're like, Jesus, this is Jesus? Is Jesus allowed to act like this? Um, because nowhere else in the Gospels was Jesus even remotely physical, Right? I mean, this guy's been preaching, love your enemies, right? Meek, the meek will inherit the earth. And now he's just like turning tables over. This is kind of crazy. Nowhere else in the Gospels has he been so physically rough. Um, and, you know, this violence can kind of resonate with a certain crowd. I don't know if you've ever, you know, if you ever follow any preachers that are kind of like, ah, you know, that kind of Christianity, the, uh, the, the, the type of Christians who really embrace the image of Jesus riding a white horse, sword in hand, right? Tattoo on his thigh. That comes from the book of Revelation. So for some, you know, this, this passage can be used to like uh, justify a certain way of being. But I, I wanted to be just like maybe give us a bit of a caution before we take this posture of Jesus. Because this is the only time that we've seen Jesus act this way, is it not? So I'm not saying that he's acting inappropriately. Of course not. This is the Son of God. His, his life was perfect. But we do, I think, have to consider who did this. Like Jesus, the perfect Son of God, was the one acting here. We, we probably shouldn't be as confident in anything as he was in that moment based on his perfect spotless record. And then also like how he did it. Notice, even though it does appear to be violent, there's like a big outburst that happens. Not a person has a hand laid on them, right? Nobody is touched. 
uh, besides potentially some doves and later in this story, a fig tree. So the deepest meaning of Jesus' action in this temple, like we just, we got to get this out right here. The deepest meaning here is that Jesus is the Messiah. He's more than a prophet. He's not just a prophet. And he has authority over the temple. That's really key. Who can walk into the temple and call the temple practices bad, but the Lord of the temple? This is one of the things that got Jesus killed. This act of authority here. So what does is, what is, um, what is, what is Jesus say about his anger? I've been asking you, what do you think about his anger? But what does Jesus say about his anger? Well, he, he justifies his behavior with scripture. Let's go to verse 13. It says, it is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer. He's quoting Isaiah 56 there. But you are making it a den of robbers. Another Old Testament quote, quoting Jeremiah 7, 11. You should go back and read those passages this week. Whenever Jesus hyperlinks us back to something in the Old Testament, he's speaking, remember, to a crowd that knew the Old Testament through and through. They would have known that he was referring not just to that little sentence, in, in Jeremiah or Isaiah, but the entire passage. So you should go back and look. But here's the thing. What does Jesus say about his church? My church will not be a marketplace. My church will be called a house of prayer. It made me think, is our church a house of prayer? Are we caught up in, in, in ways that are promoting like showiness? Are we like caught up in the act of trying to have things look a certain way? Is our church a house of prayer? Is really convicting. And this is actually the spirit I would invite you into. Like, not to be hypercritical. I, trust me, I don't love it when you come up with a bunch of criticisms of our church. But I, actually, I would love it if you noticed things and you kindly said them so that we didn't get off track. Do you know what I'm saying? I think this is the way, this is the spirit that we should have. I mean, we, we, if we're honest, you know, we, we like the party, right? Second birthday, yay! Like, we like to hang out. We like to have a good time together. We like the Sunday gathering, like this is cool. We set aside this hour and a half on Sunday mornings. Like it, it, it sets order maybe to our day, to our week. Um, we like to sing. I mean, who doesn't like to sing? We, most of us like to sing. Uh, we like to hear the teaching of the word probably. I know you guys say that a lot. You really like the, the teaching of the word, um, which thank you um, for the compliments, I suppose. But I can tell that you guys just like the teaching of the word. Um, but I can tell you, um, you know, with certainty, the least popular meeting I can call as your pastor is the prayer meeting. And, uh, you know, this morning was really cool, actually. I was like, oh, this is like working against my point here. But we had, we had like a really great crowd for pre-service prayer. I just want to make a little plug. We, we do pray every Sunday at 9 a.m. And, and everybody is welcome to join us. But, and I don't just say, I mean, I'm the same way. You get what I'm saying. I mean, we, I, I, we can fall into these habits. Like we like the big gathering. We like the party. But prayer can be hard. Prayer can be really hard. And I was just thinking this week, you know, I, I come back from vacation, new school year starting. You kind of, you're trying to get into some new rhythms, embrace some habits that maybe fell to the wayside last year. And so I've been trying to, um, like prayer has been hard for me recently, so I decided I was going to walk and pray, hoping that this would be better. And I was just realizing how easy it is for me to think about anything and everything but actual prayer. Like prayer's tough. I think being a house of prayer is a high calling and a really difficult calling, and we should just take it seriously. It's not easy. 
we kind of need each other, to be honest. That's one thing I like about 9 a.m. prayer. I have friends with me at 9 a.m. to pray. So if you, if you have a hard time with prayer, you're not sure how to pray, come join us at 9 a.m. And let's try to become a house of prayer. But anyways, this whole dynamic, it, it, it begs the question, like, in what ways have we made the house of God a den of thieves? If Jesus showed up here on a Sunday morning, would he say this about us? How have we manipulated religion in order to get what we want or to turn a profit? You know, and think about the American church. Just think about it. Think about what you think of when you think of church. Think about, if you will, I mean, it's really easy for us as a small church to blast the megachurch, you know, but, but let's think about what we see, the production quality, the showiness of some of what's being done in American churches, or how about some of the things that we say? Like when we take an offering and we say, um, give to God and God will give to you. Are we not doing the same type of exploitation that was happening in the temple courts? What about when we say, follow God and you'll escape hardship? Is that a true and accurate representation of what we see in Scripture? Or is it just manipulative and exploitive? Or how about when we do things for show, all the while ignoring a pursuit of the fruit of true discipleship? What if we get more concerned with the production quality than we do with the quality of discipleship? What if? That'd be a bad thing, would it not? If we were more concerned with how this looked than if we were actually growing as disciples, as apprentices to the ways of Jesus? What if, we, what if we got more focused on numbers, like how many people we could attract and get to show up, than we were focused on how we were growing as disciples? What if we got, um, what, what, if we, what if we made the institution bigger and we cared more about the institution than we did the person and the presence of Jesus? Imagine the story, Jesus walks into the temple courts. Let that sink in. The Messiah walks in to the temple courts. Do they notice him? Maybe that's why he was so angry. They literally had the presence of Jesus, the son of David, the Messiah, all the things that we've been calling him. And they kept on with their religious practices, selling doves, changing money, to pay the temple tax. You know, the American church is plagued by a bit of uh, this like virus of like efficiency and production. I, I had lunch with Danny this week, just like, tell me what you're gonna say, you know? And uh, Danny, Danny was like really, he was like, he was kind of laughing about it, but he was saying like, you know, he, he had heard this church growth expert tell him uh, or, or say that if you add six more chairs to your sanctuary, you could expect your monthly revenue to increase as a church by X percent. You get what I'm saying? We, we can fall prey to these like business-oriented models. We can start to think about things like that. Like just one little funny example is like, did you know that we were looking for a place that had a big parking lot? <laughs> Sometimes things like that can get put over enjoying the presence of God. You guys remember the Asbury revival that happened at Asbury University recently? Um, and again, I'm going to quote Danny. Danny actually went to the revival with Andre. Some of you guys know Andre. He was here to teach once or twice as well. And the thing that Danny told me that was so great about Asbury is that it was not this huge production. He was like, it was so basic, like embarrassingly basic. He's like, you know, there was no like incredible worship team on stage. There was no polished speaker. 
it was led by students. And, and he made the joke that like one of the women who talked when he was there looked like she just rolled out of bed for her 8 a.m. class, no makeup or anything. I think God is called, I think if Jesus walked in right now, he would want to call us back to true, pure faith and away from the show. I just would want to invite ourselves. Like, we, I mean, we want to have excellent singing. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong. But when those become the main things and we lose sight of authenticity, we're totally missing the boat. So anyway, Jesus is really upset about this. And, and he takes aim um, at these things that bother him. But he's not just deconstructing the temple. He's going to reconstruct it. And I love that. That's one of the things that bothers me the most about the deconstruction movement. I do think we should be asking critical questions, but we should also be coming together to find solutions. Do you know what I'm saying? Have you ever been around that person who could point out everything that's wrong and never has an idea about how to fix it or is willing to actually be a part of the solution themselves? So Jesus is not just cleansing, he's actually curing. And we're going to see in the next part of this story, Jesus cure the blind and the lame. Verse 14. The blind and the lame came to him, it says, at the temple, and he healed them. So Jesus throws out the commercialism, and he brings in the broken. And neither stay the same. That's really important. Jesus, he throws out the commercialism, he brings in the broken, and neither uh, stay the same. Did you know this is Jesus' last miracle healing in the Gospel of Matthew? This was his last healing, healing the lame and the blind. So he, he cures the temple when he overthrows the marketplace, and he cures the ailments of the world as he heals the blind and the lame. And here's the thing that you got to know. Those that know they have needs get help from Jesus. Jesus helps those who are aware of their needs. And meanwhile, those that have created and are profiting from a system of commercialized religion, they're not brought in. They're thrown out. Jesus brings the outsider who's aware of their need into the place of worship. And, and by doing this, he shows not only his authority over the temple, but he shows that he's the one that can do something about the brokenness that keeps people from God. The blind and the lame, outsiders. Being blind, being lame would have been seen as a spiritual condition that would have prohibited you from full worship in the temple. So what does Jesus do? I can take care of that. You want to worship God? I've got a solution for that. This is the Jesus who makes right the wrongs in the world so that we all have access to Jesus, I, I, or that we all have access to the Father. I think also this is a great allusion to what Jesus is about to do on the cross. Look, here's the thing. Jesus comes into the temple and he declares with his acts, I am the temple. The temple is not a place. The temple is a person. The Messiah has come. Jesus comes in and he declares, you can be made right with God. The lame, the blind, the foreigners, the broken, through repentance, can be made right with God. Jesus makes us right with God. Forget about the showy religious practices. Jesus can make a sinner right with God. Not through our own righteousness. Look, this is the message of the story. You don't have to clean yourself up. In order to get to God, all you have to do is repent. Admit your need. Jesus helps those not who are perfect. Jesus helps those who are needy. This is good news, right? This is really good news. Like, this is why we stand and we sing. This is why we sing about how he loves us, 
how jealous he is for us, who loves like a hurricane. Love that line. Yeah, this is really good news. So, so the, surely the religious leaders think that this is really good news, right? Surely that's what happens next. The senior pastors in the crowd, they get really excited about what Jesus is up to. No, that's not what happens, is it? Verse 15, it says, When the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, not happy, not joyful that the Messiah had come. They were indignant. They said, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? And then he quotes Psalm 8. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. Man, Jesus knew the Old Testament, forward and backwards. We should know the Old Testament, too. From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. See, the children get it. The children get it, but the religious leaders do not get it. And if we're honest, sometimes this is still true in our churches. And it's a good reminder that in order to become great in the kingdom of heaven, you must become not like a seasoned adult, but like a little child. The children see Jesus for who he is. The children aren't threatened by his curing power. And so they receive him as the long-awaited Messiah. Hosanna to the son of David. Somewhere someone is yelling at a child for being too loud or for getting in the way, making too much noise. You know, my kids were at um, camp last week. And they, they come back like so excited for God. I don't know if, I, I love camp ministry, by the way. We're going to send kids, kids to camp next summer um, because kids go to camp and they get excited about Jesus and they come back and they act kind of wacky. You know, um, like my, my, my two have been hanging out with friends all week and it's just like the camp friends, you know, and they're, they're talking about having Bible studies. They're having worship nights together. And this is how, like, this is how kids get, right? They get super excited and we can be like, we can be prone to even just label it, ah, just an emotional high, the camp high. You know, kids these days, oh, kids, they're so prone to these swings. Man, we oughtn't kill their zeal for Jesus. We shouldn't kill their zeal for Jesus. We should, we should promote their zeal. We should do everything we can to get ourselves out of the way. Yeah. So here we see Jesus heals the little people and rebukes the big people. What would Jesus say if he were here this morning? So now Jesus is indignant. We went from having the religious leaders indignant, and now Jesus is indignant at their indignancy. He's had enough, and he, he leaves in a huff. At least that's how I tell myself the story happens. It says in verse 17, he left them, and he went out of the city to Bethany. Remember the place I told you that Lazarus had been raised. This was two miles east on the other side of the Mount of Olives. He just needed some space. It was probably a friendly area for him. Perhaps he could stay with Mary and Martha in Bethany. But he spends the night there. He's, he's getting angry, or he's still angry, I should say. But he's not done yet. The temple chastening or the temple cleansing, it needs some explaining. And that's where I think this story about the fig tree fits in. 
So this is a really crazy story. Uh, I don't know what's crazier, Jesus getting really angry at the temple or Jesus cursing a fig tree to death for not having fruit on it. But this is a wild story, and we need to take a look at what this story means. And I believe that this story is meant to explain why Jesus got so upset about what was going on in the temple. And you know how Jesus was? He, used, you know, he, he wasn't often like straight to the point. He would typically tell parables or ask questions in order to get you to think. And I think here Jesus is giving a, an illustration like in the flesh. It's like the flannel graph like comes to life, and Jesus curses a fig tree. It says, verse 18, uh, early in the morning, and I'm sorry, night owls, but this is proof that Jesus gets up early. Anyways, early in the morning, Jesus was on his way back to the city, and it says that he was hungry, okay, and maybe hangry would be a better way to say what Jesus was experiencing in that moment, but, but in any event, we shouldn't notice the humanity of Jesus. Jesus needed to sleep, and Jesus needed to eat. Sometimes we have this picture of Jesus that he's just floating around on clouds, not really experiencing the world the same way that we experience the world. You have to remember, Jesus gave up his divine attributes when he came to earth as a man. And so he's hungry here in this passage. Anyways, verse 19, he's seen a fig tree by the road. Remember Beth Page, the house of figs. So he sees a fig uh, tree by the road. He went up to it, but he found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withers. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. So what's up with this fig tree story? If we had problems with Jesus getting angry in the temple, we're certain to have problems with Jesus cursing a fig tree. Now, some commentators would say that what's most important here is the miracle of power, just Jesus' demonstration of power. But others would point to the symbolic interpretation. And I, that's where I want to go uh, today. See, the fig tree, and we'll find this out later in Matthew, if you go to uh, Matthew chapter 24, uh, the fig tree represents Israel. So a typical fig tree um, produces bloom before leaves. So when Jesus walked up to this fig tree with leaves, he was expecting there to be fruit. Does that make sense? There should have been fruit on this tree. The way that it looked, the showiness of the tree indicated that there should be some fruit, but there was no fruit. So in this way, Jesus essentially is saying, Israel, you're just like this fig tree. You look a certain way, you're super concerned about the way things look on the outside, but there's no fruit present. There's not true righteousness being born in your religion. Jesus comes, he looks, and he expects to see fruit, but there is no fruit. Now, just a little caveat here. I don't think that Jesus is condemning fruitlessness. There are times and seasons in our life where we can feel uh, fruitless, but instead he's condemning showiness without fruitfulness. Does that make sense? It's, uh, it's, it's uh, hypocrisy that Jesus is coming at in this passage. So Jesus withers the tree to demonstrate what will happen to hypocritical Israel. And does this seem harsh? I don't know if there's any tree huggers in the room who have a problem with Jesus being mean to animals and, and, uh, and withering or cursing this poor tree. Maybe I was listening to, I listened to uh, a pastor called John Mark Comer quite a bit. 
and I'm always laughing at the way he has to like frame everything because he pastors in Portland. And I'm just thinking it's like the things you have to explain are so different in Portland than here. You know what I'm saying? Anyways, um, but honestly, I mean, like, like honestly, uh, I mean, is hatred for hypocrisy not like something that we all kind of agree with? I mean, what, we, we said this months ago. Like, what's the number one problem that the world has with Christians? It's hypocrisy. And guess who else hates hypocrisy of the church? Jesus hates the hypocrisy of the church. So Jesus sacrifices this fig tree in order to prove a point. See, Jesus is not into the type of religion that says one thing, that shows one thing without fruitful living. Jesus doesn't like it when the insiders are showy and lack substance. And this is why he brings in the outsiders. Why? Because the outsiders know their need for him. So disciples uh, evidently are amazed at what Jesus just did. I'm not sure how they could still be amazed at anything at this point. Perhaps this shows a little bit of the, uh, the way that the disciples were little faiths themselves. But they were evidently perplexed about what just happened, so Jesus has to give a final explanation. Verse 21, it says, Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. These last two verses are, I think, really important. They're also super controversial. You know, uh, some of you have, have fallen victim or, or have your own suspicions about the whole name it and claim it version of Christianity. You know that if you pray hard enough, if you conjure up enough faith, you can get whatever you ask for. It seems like this is what these prominent televangelists are trying to get us to do, right? And if you just give me money so I can buy this jet, you're going to be blessed. Anyways, and don't worry, we're not going to take up an offering to pay for the vacation we just had. <laughs> Anyways, I digress. The passage seems to say, if you believe, you will receive. But, I mean, if we're honest, I mean, has everything you asked for in prayer been granted? Man, this can make it really tough. I think this is why there are some branches of Christianity who, who don't believe that God acts in miraculous ways in response to our prayers anymore. Because sometimes our experience tells us that God doesn't always answer our prayers the way that we think he should. Even when we muster all the faith that we can possibly muster. I mean, some of you have walked through this as loved ones have died even though you prayed as hard as you could think to pray. And maybe some of you have even been chastised in these moments. Well, you just didn't have enough faith. That's why the, the miracle didn't happen. You just needed to have more faith. That's actually, that happened in the Bible. You remember the story of Job, whose friends told him, it's your fault all this has happened to you. In many manners, if we're honest, you guys, it's really hard to pray with undoubting confidence. It's really hard to really believe and I would just give you this consolation, and we're about to get to this part of the story, but you know, even Jesus prayed unanswered prayers. Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knows that his, his crucifixion is coming, and what does he ask the Father? If there be any way, would you take this cup from me? But what does he say? Not my will, but your will be done. I think as we learn from this story to pray in the will 
of the Father, we can have full confidence that when we pray in the will of the Father, our prayers will be answered. I think that's what Jesus means when he says, if you believe, if your faith is true, if you know how this really goes, everything you ask for will be received. So faith in is, it's knowing that God's ways are not my ways. They're not our ways. But in the end, they're always good. And this is why we can sing songs even as we face hardships, trials, even when things in our lives don't seem to be going good. We can sing songs like, your goodness is running after me. All my life, you've been faithful. Because even when we don't see it, he's working. So true faith is willing to pray the big prayers, knowing that, and this is quoting a theologian named Schlatter, praying the big prayers, even knowing that God desires of us nothing more ardently than that we ask many and great things of him, and he is displeased if we do not confidently ask. What do we learn in Matthew 7? Ask, seek, knock. This is the heart that God wants from us. Faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. And I think sometimes our experience, if we're honest, the, the, way, like the way we've seen the world, the things that have happened to us, can make us shy about praying the big prayers. Hey, if we're going to be a house of prayer, can we pray big prayers? I want to be a, a house that prays enormous prayers. Yeah, Lord, your will be done. But we're going to pray for the big things. We're going to ask, we're going to seek, and we're going to knock. So anyway, as we, as we round the final turn, we, we head towards home. Another sports analogy. Let me leave you with, uh, with three points of application. And um, I mean, this message, it just has a big, like, what are we going to do about this twinge to it, doesn't it? So three applications. All of them begin with the letter F. I mean, because you know how I do it. Uh, three points of application. First of all, you need, we're going we're gonna to need to check our frustrations. I think this story teaches us that we need to check our frustrations. Look, what makes your blood boil? Do you get angry like Jesus got angry? Do you get angry at the same things Jesus got angry about? I was thinking about some of the things I get angry about and what they reveal about what I value. You know, like when the kid like spills something and how that reveals like the value that I have is to not be bothered, right? Or when the official misses a call, right? And I say it's like all about the kids. It's really because it's all about me and I don't want to lose, right? It's pride. You get what I'm saying? Anger is a secondary emotion. Anger is like the expression of another deeper emotion. Maybe it's disappointment that causes your anger. Maybe it's defensiveness. Maybe it's fear. Anyone get really angry when you're scared? Maybe it's unmet expectations. I don't know, like as a teacher, sometimes I've noticed I'll get most angry at my students when I haven't been prepared as a teacher and things have gone chaotic. And then I'll just be like, ah, you know, cleanse the classroom. What's really behind my anger is I wasn't prepared. I didn't have a good plan today. Anyways, the second thing I think that we need to do is we need to check our fruit. Is, what does your tree look like? Is your tree leafy but not fruity? We need fruity trees. That sounds funny. <laughs> Okay. Anyways. Yeah, but, but what does your life look like? Psalm 1 kind of compares our life 
to that of a tree. I think Jesus is on the scene. He's looking at our trees and he's expecting fruitfulness. Do you have leaves without fruit? I don't know. Like here's some examples to get you thinking. Like, you know, like we sh- we're showing up to church. You may- maybe you make it a priority to be at church on Sunday morning, but then the rest of the week you live however you want to live. Maybe you post social media about Bible verses and Christian things, and then you live how you want to live when you're by yourself. Maybe, maybe you're holding on to your hidden sin. Maybe it's, oh, it's gossip or slander. Maybe it's unforgiveness and resentment. Probably it's unforgiveness and resentment. Maybe, maybe you know, behind the scenes you've got a pornography addiction, but you're showing a good face in church. Maybe it's greed. Maybe it's materialism. Maybe, maybe you're lying to get ahead. Do you have the look of a Christian without the fruit of a Christ-centered life? Do we, do I, have the look of a Christian without a truly Christ-centered life? Remember Matthew 7, this warning in Matthew 7. Jesus said, there will be many in the last days who call to me, Lord, Lord, I did this for you. I did that in your name. But his Father will proclaim, away from me. Depart from my presence, for I never knew you. We can do the right thing for the wrong reasons. We can appear to have leafy trees, but all the while our our trees are devoid of fruit. It reminded me of this situation that happened about 10 years ago, a little more than that maybe. I was up praying for people uh, at the end of a service for like, you know, kind of an altar call. And this man named Little Joe Hudgens was a homeless man. He came up to me. And he started confessing sins that I had never heard a man confess before. <laughs> like seriously crazy stuff and really honest stuff. And uh, that guy met Jesus that day. His life started to change. Like we look back at pictures of little Joe and, and Joe's like everything about him changed. He went from being homeless. He got brought into a home. He became part of the family of God. Not everything was perfect in his life. Don't get me wrong. You know, but I remember Joe saying to me that Sunday after church, he's like, this is the first church I've ever been to where Christians actually, actually act like Christians. Man, fruitfulness is powerful. There's a world that's watching. Someone's life could be changed by the legitis- legitimacy of your life. We want to be a church of real Christians. This is what we want. We don't just want to show. We want to live the life. So speaking of faith, um, I think the last thing we can do in response is to check our faith. And the next three passages are actually about Jesus revealing what is true faith. And I think this is a great spot for us to leave off today. But, but we could all check our faith from time to time. I mean, what do your prayers look like? I'll say it again. What would happen if all your prayers from last week were actually answered? Are you praying big, life-changing prayers? Like, seriously. Or, I mean, I know that we pray that our kids would have protection. We pray for that the cold would go away. But would your life look any different if all your prayers from last week were answered? I've been challenged. I heard that quote just a few weeks ago, and I thought to myself, man, I need to pray bigger prayers because nothing would change in my life if all my prayers from last week were answered. Are we praying big, God-honoring prayers? Prayers that align with the will of God. How would we even know the will of God? But if we're in the word of God, studying the word of God, communing with him on the regular. 
Maybe we're not even praying any prayers at all. I don't know if, our, if the problems that our prayers are too small or that we're not praying any prayers at all. But here we are in the story. Jesus, he, he came into the temple courts, into his house of prayer. And what he found was a fruitless system marked by a showy faith without any substance. And the point of this passage is that Jesus is coming to our tree and he's expecting to find fruit. You can apply that to our church and you can apply it to your own life. How are we going to respond? Matthew 3, this is John the Baptist speaking. Another pretty mighty prophet. John the Baptist got wacky. He said, but when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming to watch him baptized, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he called them. Who warns you to flee the coming wrath? And then what does he say? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we're descendants of Abraham. That means nothing, for I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the trees. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. What's the good fruit John's talking about? Repentance. The acknowledgement that we haven't gotten it all right. You haven't gotten it all right. I haven't gotten it all right. Acknowledgement of my desperate need for saving. This morning, as we sing this one last song, I, I wanted to start, and worship team, could you guys come on up? I just wanted to start with just like a minute or two of just like silence, listening, and reflecting. So they'll start playing uh, before we sing, but before you come forward to receive the bread and the cup, search your heart. And if there be anything in your heart that God's convicting, repent it. Breathe it out. Demonstrate the fruit of repentance this morning. And I think that, that there's actually a warning from the Apostle Paul, like that what would happen could be really, really, really bad if we come and we take these elements without repentance. And so if you're this morning, you're like, man, there's a lot mixed up inside of me. I don't even know if I've like rightly handled this. Maybe there's someone you need to apologize to for the first time. Don't come forward. It's fine. It's possible that the most righteous thing you could do this morning is not come forward. But if you can do business before God this morning, do business before God. And then come receive his grace, the body of Christ, broken for you. His blood poured out for you so that you, an outsider, could be brought to the inside. So that you, broken, blind, lame, could have relationship with God the Father. Hey, we're so glad you joined us, but don't forget to stay connected either through our website, our social media, or the Church Center app. Or you know what? Better yet, come join us in person on a Sunday morning. See you soon.